Hi, I'm Lucas Mack, and welcome to another episode of The Golden Rule Revolution, where inspiration and purpose come from treating people like people and nothing less. Today, my guest is Evan Thompson. He is the creator of Eroche Foucault, which is a platform dedicated to philosophy, big ideas, and a true education for the 21st century. He has nearly 100 hours of published podcasts and YouTube content. Born and raised in Iowa, Evan has lived in North Carolina, Washington, D.C., and currently lives in Chiang Mai, Thailand. He has traveled or worked in 28 countries on four continents. For the past decade, Evan has been almost singularly focused on the pursuit of two goals, to understand the highest ethical potential of the individual and society, and then how to get there. It's an honor to have Evan Thompson. Evan, how are you today? I'm doing great, Lucas. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, and it's really nice to have you back on the Golden Rule Revolution. Today, today we talk about moral clarity amongst individuals. And as the world becomes more relative, as I call relational relativism, we are at another stage in human history where the heat is rising, the pressure is building. And now we are left with very few voices that are bringing solutions to how do we move forward with moral clarity. And Evan, where do we start? That's a perfect introduction. Heat rising, pressure mounting, and fewer people talking about solutions. I would agree with that completely. Um, And yeah, moral clarity, that's a perfect segue into kind of an idea I had or a story I had that maybe you would appreciate and that to me serves as an example of where we actually start. How do we break the cycle of this? Well, what is it? Chaos, maybe? I mean, you call it relativism. I'd agree with that. But it's almost like a complete refusal to cooperate or talk about what matters most. And so my story actually comes from Northern Thailand, <laughs> right in my backyard, just a few hundred miles away from where I live. There was an international news incident, and maybe you've, maybe you've heard of it. I'm assuming you've heard of the Tom Luang Cave rescue? I, yes, I have heard of it. I have, thanks to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, so this was big news. It was big news in Thailand, but it became, it just blew up. It became big news Um, around the world. Everybody started following this. And so I'll kind of assume most of your listeners will have heard it, but I'll give a very brief introduction to the context. Uh, The Tom Luang Cave was a a cave system in northern Thailand. And what had happened in late June, 12 boys who were, I guess, part of a soccer team. That's kind of how the story got molded a bit, mainly because of the World Cup. But the soccer is not important. 12 boys and their coach were in a cave. They were exploring a cave as a team after practice and it flooded Mm. and they got trapped. And it took about a day for them to figure out that they were trapped and where exactly they were. But rescue teams were mobilized and people were trying to dig tunnels into the cave. People were trying to get water out of the cave. There were pumps and pressure pumps that ended up, uh, I I think it was something like they drained like over a million gallons of water from this cave over a few day period. But this expanded within just a few days. This wasn't just Thailand. Now, Thailand did remarkable in terms of the response to this. 
but there were people from the UK that got involved, um, master divers from the UK, from China, um, special operations teams from Australia, uh, then the military of Thailand, special operations of Thailand. In all, 10,000 people, 10,000 people got mobilized wow. for this cave rescue. For 12 boys, teenage boys, and their coach who was in his 20s. 10,000 people. Now, it took them 10 days to actually find these, to find the boys. It took them 10 days. They were in that cave for 10 days, stranded with nothing. They found them in 10 days, and it took them another 10 days to get them out. Now, one person very tragically but heroically gave his life in this. He was Thai. He was a master special forces Thai diver, and he died in this operation to help save these kids. Wow. But the story here, 10,000 people, hundreds of divers, rescue workers, government officials from over 100 countries. Even Elon Musk tried to design a submarine for this cave rescue. People around the world were looking at this problem. They were asking every question, every question they could think of. But there was one question they didn't ask. Who did you vote for? Nobody cared. Hmm. Nobody cared if you voted for Trump or Brexit or Clinton or Remain hmm. or what your position on the EU was or what your politics in Australia were or how you felt about tariffs in China or tariffs in the U.S. or steel or aluminum or any of that stuff. They cared about rescuing these boys. That to me is moral clarity. Hmm. And, or that's a perfect example of that because it was everybody collect, around the world. The world had a message to say on this. And they knew on this issue, no, that other stuff does not matter. I don't care what race you are. I don't care how you identify. I don't care who you voted for. If you mm -hmm. can help us solve this problem, you're on our team. The amount of work that it takes to get something solved like they did and the amount of communication that it takes to achieve what they did yeah, doesn't happen without a single goal and a single dedicated purpose. Their purpose was to save lives. Yeah. My well, that, purpose and, and definitely. is to save lives. Absolutely. And, and, and there's so much clarity in that to me because there's two points. There's two points there. Now, obviously, this was in part political. It takes politics to solve this problem. Hmm. It's because of politics and economies and governance that vehicles were able to drive up there, that teams of people were able to fly in there and technology and progress, that Water pumps were able to pump water out, that equipment was available for hundreds of divers, that people were able to coordinate this in northern Thailand, which isn't exactly, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty rural mountainous area. It's not, it's not the most geographically friendly area to coordinate a big operation. So that's inherently a political issue. But no one was, no one was out there saying, here's all the problems and here's why we can't move forward. Everybody was saying, how can we accomplish this mission? And there's a second point here. 
Yeah, to save lives. Absolutely. There, there's, there's, there hasn't been a clearer moral statement that I've heard in the past several years about what our priorities are. Life is intrinsically valuable. That was a lesson that we learned as a species after a lot of, <laughs> after a lot of activity where <laughs> life wasn't intrinsically valuable. But we stated clearly here, life is intrinsically valuable. You know how much it cost to save these 13 people? I actually don't know, but a lot of money. Yeah. 10,000 people yes. involved for a, a, a nearly three-week period? That's a lot of money. Was it worth it? Every penny. Every sure. penny. Absolutely. With, with, without question. I don't even care what that price tag was. You saved 13 people's lives. That was worth it. That, that's mm. extremely clear. And you know what the impact of that is? Everyone around the world just got to hear that message loud and clear. That life mm. is intrinsically valuable. And, and not just life in general. Any life. Because people from around the world were involved. Yeah. And these 12 Thai boys and their coach, these 13, well, they're all young. These 13 young people, they got told a message from around the world. And they were told one clear message. The world came to save your life. Now, what do you think their mission in life is going to be? That's going to be a true statement for the rest of their lives. For the rest of their lives, they can look in the mirror and say, the entire world came to save my life. What should I be doing today? It's a beautiful question. To live a life worthy of that sacrifice, to live a life worthy of that cost, that one diver's life that was given willingly. No one forced that diver down there. Yeah. Life is, is a word that becomes so... It's a word we we don't really want to go into in the social narrative right now because it brings up a lot. <laughs> it brings yeah. up a lot. And I, it brings up people's views of the rights of their body, the rights of their actions, the rights of life. It It brings up quite a bit. However... I believe it's the one word that because it's not being focused on and we're continually left with the same cycle of issues that perhaps we should start focusing on and not in the row argument because that argument is tired. It's old. It's contentious. It's divisive but more in the universal discussion of life. And like you said, the intrinsic value of it and the beautiful worth of the individual. I think everyone can agree around a universal concept of life, but when you bring it down to each and every individual being of equal value, that's where it becomes a little dicey. Well, I would agree with that completely. And to speak on both universals and uh, equally controversial topics, but that pertain particularly to our idea on how we value life, 
and how we think about morality and what are the real moral issues or what are the principal clear moral problems. Modern slavery. And this is one of these, this is a phenomena that is weirdly ignored. And so here's something that I was thinking about. And maybe these are numbers that you're not familiar with, but to me, this is uh, necessary to our concept of really thinking about the individual value of individual lives. And it's this topic right here. Now, if we look at what the Global Slavery Index is, and that's an organization that fights modern slavery. There are 40 million people today around the world in every country in one form of slavery or another. 40 million. That's remarkable. Now, to put this as a comparison, one of the worst points in human history and a point that everyone in America knows about is the transatlantic slave trade. One of the most grotesque things our species has done Now, in a 300-year period during the American colonies and for the first few decades in the United States, 10 million slaves were transported to the Americas. Wow. Now, that's 10 million horrible events, unbelievably, unspeakably immoral acts done by our species. Yet today, right now, 40 million people live in slavery around the world. And the thing that's confusing to me when I'm thinking about moral clarity is that matters. And part of our looking back on the mistakes we made in the past is for the purpose of actually learning from them. Hmm. And the story of the ugly things our species did in that period of time in the transatlantic slave trade the, the moral lesson was that slavery is wrong, objectively. In all cases, it's morally reprehensible, equally morally reprehensible today. And there's 40 million people in that status today, the majority of which are women, by the way, which is, which is just absolutely, it's, it's shocking to the consciousness. And so when I was thinking about that, I was wondering, wait, why is this a case? Why in America... In a country that's very and very rightfully attuned to that issue, why do we seem to be unable to talk about it today, to, to, to fight the injustices that are occurring today globally, and then focus instead entirely upon the historic narrative? Again, the historic narrative matters. We learn that to not do it today, but that hasn't happened, and that's a bit of a problem. And so when I think about moral clarity, I think about it in this way, because that's a macro problem. That that issue, that's a huge level problem. It's macro level. Now, what are we doing in the United States? We are avoiding macro problems in the name of solving micro aggressions. Hmm. And that's a problem of moral clarity right then and there. If there ever is an example of it, it's right there. When I, and I've mentioned this before on this podcast, and when I, and I've mentioned this before to you, when I speak publicly, do public speaking, I ask people to finish this statement to each their own, 
Everyone says own. <laughs> they whisper it. They mumble it. You can see them thinking, yep, own. To each their own until I come do something terrible to you. So terrible, in fact, that perhaps you lose every faculty of your body, lose your home, your money. I destroy everything you have. And would you be okay with that? Of course not. So when the narrative of to each their own is upheld as truth, what that narrative breaks down to is it's okay until it affects me. But the moment it affects me, it's no longer okay. Therefore, it's not true because if it does not apply to all, it shall not apply to any. And thinking about this, there's an old, um, there's an author, uh, and he's no longer alive, but he old. There's a, it's an old quote that he said, A.W. Tozer said, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. A man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. And what he meant by that is simply, if you feel, if you feel it, it is more real than if you ever think it. The old adage, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care, is true. Because people Mm. need to feel before they process. This is why I think we are missing moral clarity right now because there is so much hurt. There is so much trauma. There is so much undealt with pain inside the individual in the country right now. I mean, statistically, one in six children are abused in the United States. The suicide rate's higher than it's ever been. The the moral decay, and I don't mean uh, old-fashioned, old-timey, you know, Bible Belt morality. That's not what I'm talking about. But the simple moral decay that is taking place, how how children speak to elders, how elders know, despise really the next generation, how the the music is is eroding the value of the individual in pop culture and self-worth. And yet everyone's seeking self-worth. This sad cycle that is continually bringing us down and apart is keeping the individual from going into that pain and saying, where did my pain originate from? Was I born with it? No. That's the answer. My answer is no, you were not born with pain. You, no one was born racist. No one was born prejudiced. No one was born looking at the economic uh, positioning of the people in the delivery room. No, we are taught this. And who are we taught this from? Are we taught this from healthy people? No, we're taught this from hurt people mm. who hurt people. And the cycle continues. So a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument why we don't go exactly what you just laid out. I believe why we don't go into these places as a society is because people are afraid. Now, fear is at the root of both the hedging against progress, but fear is also at the root of those that only seek progress that are unwilling to go back 
and look at why. We have to deal with the fear right now. People are afraid and fear is the root of the vitriol. Fear is the root of the hate. Fear is the root of the divisive rhetoric. Fear is at the root of everything that divides. And we need another FDR to stand up and say in that beautiful New England voice that has almost disappeared in America, the only thing to fear is fear itself. What do you think of that? Uh, there's, I would say the only thing that I would, that I would disagree with in what you said is no, we are born with pain now in a slightly different way than, than perhaps how you meant it. You, you took it in a different direction, but mm. we all experience pain. It's an unavoidable part of reality. It, it is unavoidable. We, we all have joys and pain. That's true. We all, yes. we all experience loss, it, but we all will die actually. You know, in a second, that's the problem of consciousness in a way. That's the burden of knowledge, of mm. basic knowledge, of awareness. Of uh, That's the burden of us having this big brain that we all collectively have. Now, obviously, some people are cleverer than others, but everyone alive has a big enough brain to understand our own mortality. So we have to be able to manage pain no matter what. It's an unavoidable mm. um, part of life. It's, the ba it's, it's more or less the basis of existential philosophy is that we that every choice contains regret that every state of success is also a state of failure that every win is also a loss in a way and that each day we progress we're also moving closer to death that that's part of the human condition mm. that's tremendously complicated but i but i would agree with respect to especially what you're saying about fear and i would say that there's two ideas that that i've been thinking about with respect to that um First of all, we have a me culture. We have this obsessive me culture, and it's a commercialized me culture. And so in a way, this fear is extremely profitable, right? So if you, I mean, one thing that I've noticed, and I don't, I don't like this, uh, it doesn't guide the content I make, for example. But when I make something that says hashtag Russia, it gets a lot more views than hashtag US grand strategy. <laughs> for example yeah you know like so uh, fear is profitable and so i get from the perspective of pure rational self-interest if we remove all morality from it from just rational self-interest it would work to my benefit to copy like what rachel maddow is doing or something like that right and just and just put up a, a map of russia and a photo of putin and point at it like and and profit. That's a very profitable strategy. But the other point about the me culture that we have is it's also a me code because the world is being mediated through intersubjectivity at the basic level of experience. And so here's what I mean by that. So much of our experiences now, they're not real or whatever real is. They're mediated through screens through preference settings, through algorithms, through networks, online networks, through communicative networks. And all of these things, they're coded generally in the same way, and they're coded based upon the same moral principle. So they're coded in the same way for one purpose, time. It wants your time. 
Hmm. If it gets you to spend time and click on things and do things, it's making money off of you. And so it wants to maximize that. And the way it maximizes that is by doing two things, fear and you. You, 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 you. It wants to mm-hmm. look like you. It wants to give you what you want, what you want to see. It wants to conform reality to you. And so suddenly, all or a good percentage of your interactions online, especially our wonderful generation, so much of our interactions online as adults have all been mediated through an algorithm that tells us things that we want. Mm. So, it, which is to say, it conforms reality and creates reality before us in our own image. And then when we walk outside, oh God, when we walk into the real world and it's a world that wasn't created in our image, it's a world that isn't under the subjective authoritarian force of our choices and our preference settings. It's, it's the real world and it's scary. Hmm. And, it, and That's it's where the tension comes from. Because That's where the tension we are, comes from. We don't we know how are, to act. Exactly. And I would say, use this word ironically, the, the inner subjectivity, I like that, what you just said in our engagement, is driving our focus on us as individuals, on the me. However, there's a book called The Pendulum and um, Pendulum Swing, I forget. Uh, it's been a while since I read it, but said essentially we are every 40 years, the pendulum swings to one side, it swings and it's we, the height of the pendulum swing is we, and then it will swing back and it will go back the other side. And the height of the other pendulum, the, the side of the other pendulum swing is me. So the, it, this author broke down look at essentially 40 years ago in the United States was the me culture. It was the eighties. It was where Ronald Reagan could be president and talk about rugged individualism because everyone was out for themselves. It was the height of the me generation. But 40 years before that was the greatest generation in world war II. That was a we generation. And we are now 80 years past the greatest generation to the place where we are coming up to the height of another we generation. And I think this is where the tension Mm. lies is that we, something is time, the evolution of man, whatever this continuation is, is bringing us back to a we yet the means by which we engage is only driving the me. Yeah. And yeah, and so it doesn't, and so it doesn't know how to communicate. And, and so it's just, and, and so you see this, especially, um, well, you'll see this for important psychologically significant reasons, more so on the left than you will on the right, because the left is more open. So there's a greater degree of, um, of variability within left cultural and political mindsets. But Mm. you see this all the time because there's a, especially on the progressive side of things, there's this extremely strong push for um, collectivism as being the highest social mandate, while at the same time it's being mediated through purely individual subjective lenses. And so you're seeing Hmm. them fight. You're seeing all these tiny microgroups 
fight with each other because they actually don't know how to communicate towards a authentic, an authentically positive collective goal. Something like save those lives in the cave. I don't care what identity group they come from. Right. And I don't care who they voted for. And the people on my team to do that, I don't care what identity group they come from. And I don't care who they voted for. Because even though stuff like that is important, and it is, it's not like it doesn't matter. These are, these are interesting things. How interesting? How important are they? Are they right. more important or equally important to right. life and death? I would say no. Unless people feel they'll never act. Sadly, the, the drug peddler on television, which I believe, and I come, and we've talked about this before in your podcast, I come from TV news. The, the opinions of the analysts are just essentially the same as a drug and people are addicted. And when they don't get their drug, they become incredibly agitated. However, when they overdose, terrible things happen then as well. And they feel something, but what they feel is feeding the pain. But when they feel something healthy, when they feel this conversation, you know, and there's, I don't know, we haven't gone down the list um, but I'm sure there's many things we disagree about. However, there's one thing we'll never disagree about, and that is the civility between mankind and how to treat man. And and I use the word love, which is an unpopular word in today's cultural narrative. And you use the word civility either way without treating people the way you would want to be treated, without being humble and preferring one another and dropping everything to save kids in caves and to to prefer one over another or to prefer another over oneself it all begins to fall apart rapidly and the moral clarity that we need today is to understand that today if you don't stand for every person right now whoever's listening if you if there is a group of people that you put in your mind that are subhuman or sub standing to your stature and your standing, whatever they may be. If you're the Christian right and you put the gay, liberal, progressive on a on a level and you you've put them below your stature that you stand higher, you are you are in danger of it happening to you. And my beautiful progressive friends who are incredibly passionate about the collective and, and who stops the collective from happening in the Christian right. If you put them at a below level and a sub level, than you're standing, you are in danger of it happening to you. I think I, I love the book common sense by Thomas Paine. I think it's one of the most important pieces of English language ever crafted. However, even Thomas Paine went over to France thinking that the French Revolution was on equal footing to the American Revolution, only to find out at the very end it was not. Why was the French Revolution not equal to the American Revolution? Well, because the French Revolution, their motto 
was liberty, equality, fraternity. Liberty, equality, fraternity. And that led to, if you, if you say liberty, equality, fraternity, then the question is, well, who legislates equality? Liberty sounds great. Everyone wants liberty. Equality sounds great. Everyone wants equality. Fraternity sounds great. Everyone wants to be in a tribe or a community of acceptance and love and togetherness. That's why gangs exist in America, because there's no home life that they feel that sense of belonging to. So they join these tribes. However, it wasn't equal to the American Revolution because the American Revolution was equality under the law. And the French Revolution was liberty, equality, fraternity, and whoever held the power dictated who was in and who was out, where even Rospere lost his head shortly thereafter in the French Revolution. And there were multiple revolutions, and it eventually led to a Napoleon. And this is why I am so passionate about the Golden Rule Revolution and why I love talking to you, Evan, and why I want to wake everyone up. You being the listener and me, we do not want a Napoleon. We do not. However, a Napoleon is inevitable when we do not love each other now. For to separate each other over things that are trivial, that don't matter when our life is at stake, which our lives are at stake. Tomorrow, there may not be the opportunity to save our lives. What are your thoughts about that? Well, first, I would agree with you on the usage of the word love. I would use that word too. I'm not using civility in place of it. I'm simply saying, let's start at a lower bar. (laughs) 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 I'm I'm not denying your aspiration. I hold the same aspiration. It just... uh, Sometimes, you know, we need a step-by-step guide. Sometimes we need both. <laughs> yeah, we, that's we need good. In, in mind, that's good. and we need the steps. Let's start with having basic civil discourse amongst people who hold different views in a democratic system. That, that to me is like level one, level one <laughs> democracy. Can yes. you have a civil discourse amongst people who hold opposing views effectively and respectfully. If you can't do that, well, oh, all right. Well, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I would, yeah, absolutely. No, love is the perfect word. Uh, like, I think, uh, I think actually one of the, the, the most clear, speaking of moral clarity, the most clear-minded moral philosophy ever stated, love God and the neighbor. Hmm. One of the smartest things ever said. Hmm. Because to me, as a non-religious person, that's one of the most brilliant statements ever made in the history of in the history of statements, uh, mm. <laughs> because t- philosophically speaking, that's saying love the highest vision of something that you can imagine and yes. look around you. Yes. Universal and, and subjective. Yep. Particular. Yep. Keep your yes. eye on an objective target and understand yes. the intersubjectivity around you. They both matter. If you focus on one more than the other, you're going to be blind to something. You're going to get whopped upside the head. That's just, and there's no way around it. That's why, like, when when Jesus said that, right? Jesus was quite the clever fellow. Um, mm-hmm. It 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 was pure brilliance, and it's like the in in this sense, Christian philosophy. If we were to uh, 
uh, synthesize it down just to that, which I think would be fair. If you were to say, what is the one thing that Christianity is? It would be that, because yes. it's a quote from Jesus, <laughs> him answering yeah. that question directly. Yes. And it's like, what also, Jesus commands Also quoting to... Moses, also quoting mm. Moses. Yes, most definitely, yeah. The mm -hmm. commandment is, by definition, contradictory. You have to do two different things at the same time. Mm. And that's not fair. That's, that's quite challenging. But that's what, that's what life is. Life isn't fair, and it's challenging, and you have to hold two things in mind at the same time and try to keep them in balance. Meanwhile, the world is changing. Meanwhile, you don't have perfect and complete information. And so it's like, at the end of the day, the most basic line, much similar to the golden rule itself, is love God and the neighbor. So love the highest conception of being that you can possibly imagine, the best moral idea that you can think of, and at the same time, pay attention to everything around you because you can't forget them in the name of your own subjective vision. Hmm. And then on your, on you, uh, that's a perfect statement. You get Napoleon in the French revolution. This yeah. is something I've talked about tremendously in, in terms of being careful about revolution. And, and we need to be extremely conscientious of, of what we do when we get to a revolutionary mindset. Yes. And the United States has such a lucky history. And it's mm -hmm. part of what you said. It's part of that idea. That's one part of it. And you, you touched on the arguably logical conclusion, but I think there's also a little bit of luck. And so my way of framing mm. this is the following. The with the French Revolution, it resulted in, oh, we need to be careful with, with revolution because sometimes you get the French Revolution and you get Napoleon, mm -hmm. but sometimes you get the American Revolution and you get Washington. And so it's not just the ideas themselves that make the American Revolution. It's also Washington. It's, it's one figure himself, which is just remarkable. It's an yeah. unbelievable history that I think is, yes. is weirdly not appreciated, even by the people that seem to talk about American history the most. I don't hear them talk about it with that level of, of kind of praise of the uniqueness of, of what occurred when Washington stepped down. Hmm. And practiced what he preached. King George said, "If he if he walks away from the presidency and sorry to interrupt you, but King George at the time said, if Washington walks away from the presidency, he will be the greatest man to ever live." Yep, because he said principle is more important than me. Hmm. Boy, <sighs> could you imagine if that happens again? And you know what? I will say it is happening again. It's happening with you and I in this podcast. It's happening with those that are listening to us and following us. And my invitation is, and I mean this with every fiber in my body, please, as you listen, continue to listen to us, continue to join us, help us as we're helping you to be revolutionary in loving people, in humility. I say there is no unity without humility. You want unity? So do I. We must be humble first. And this conversation, Evan, with you is, and we will have many, many more of these. This is how we get to that place of unity. This is how we get to the collective. This is how we get to also individual liberty and freedom is when we stay humble, preferring one another and loving one another and loving ourselves through the process. 
Well, my name is Lucas Mack. It has been such a pleasure having Evan Thompson on today. And it's also been such a pleasure having you listen. I invite you to check out Evan's work at Foucault or evanthompson.com, E-V-A-N-T-H-O-M-S-E-N.com. Join the conversation. This is a great episode for you to comment, to like, to share, agree or disagree. I invite all comments. May we have a civil discussion. May we embark on this journey of actually speaking about solutions, not just the rhetoric that divides, but the rhetoric that unites. This is the Golden Rule Revolution. My name is Lucas Mack, and it has been a pleasure having you join me and join us on this episode. And I will talk to you on the next episode.